Welcome back to Data Protection Gumbo for episode number 139. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and today I speak with Robert Cook. He is the founder and principal architect at 3Forge, a New York-based provider of data virtualization and visualization technology. 3Forge has achieved significant growth over the years as a result of increasing demand for its award-winning web-based browser AMI platform. Now, this episode discusses how AI and ML transforms fuzzy information into readable, intelligent data, the massive uptick around compliance and security, and also Robert's definition of data virtualization and its importance. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Robert. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, Dimitri? All right. Awesome. I am uh, excited to have you on. And uh, first off, I really would like for you to just maybe give the Gumbo listeners a, a quick rundown of yourself and also 3Forge. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so so first off, myself, uh, I have been a, a, a software developer my whole life. I've built many databases. Um, I've been focused on data and what data means and how humans interact with data for most of my life. Um, I uh, worked in uh, fintech for several years before starting uh, 3Forge. And that's at 3Forge.com. Uh, and we basically have provided, we've built a platform which lets uh, customers interact with uh many different types of data sources simultaneously. Um, and I can get into what I mean by data sources, but ultimately uh, the challenge that we're seeing more and more is that uh, our customers have a growing uh, array, growing variety of ways to store data. And all of that data, when you put it together, tells a very meaningful and valuable story monetarily. And uh, we've really focused on how to bring all of that together, um, despite being in stored in disparate ways, bringing that together and letting our customers do that. Um, our customers range from uh, sell-side uh, firms, uh, tier one banks, buy-side firms, uh, cryptocurrency firms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so anyone who's dealing with lots of data. Okay. I appreciate you sharing that. And, and you you also spawned the next question, which is around the uh, data sources and the different types of data sources that that you are familiar with, and I guess that that you work with, so the Gumbo listeners will understand that. And you also mentioned um, telling a story. I guess a, a story. What the data the data tells a story. Mm-hmm. And is is that by industry, or I'll, I'll let you explain that. Sure. Well, well, first off, uh, I'll, I'll I'll kind of break that into parts. So when I talk about different types of data sources, um, first off, there's I mean, it, it seems as though every day or at least every week we're introduced to a new type of database. So they're springing up everywhere. Um, and there's, you know, the, the old classics like the MySQLs and the DB2s of the world. But then there's always these new databases coming up um, every day. I break them. We break them into a few different categories. Um, so one would be unstructured data, sometimes called NoSQL. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, the second category I would look at would be structured data, <laughs> and then uh, and, and you know generally that's SQL based. Um, there's a few columnar databases that have different languages, but but generally it's SQL based. And then the third type, which is which is particularly interesting to us, is real time streaming data. 
So that's usually message-driven data, and and um, and uh, so bringing all three of those together is, is is the challenge that we're focused on helping our customers solve. So so I'll I'll go on to the second part of that question, which is what do I mean by a story? Let's take a simple example in in finance. Um, let's say you buy you buy a stock, um, or or you 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 make a position to buy a stock. Well, that goes in through a client connectivity layer, so that gets stored in one type of database. Um, that's then you know uh, fed into maybe an algo trading system or some sort of out order route or something along those lines, and that's probably married with market data, so to help make decisions. Um, so now you've got market data, which is generally stored in a column or database. And um, now you've got these algo orders, which have lots of parameters on it. And that might be stored in a no structured, um, unstructured database, something like that. Um, then that travels through another system. And by the way, as these messages travel from system to system, that's what we would call the real-time streaming data. And then eventually it makes its way out to the exchange. Now, the issue you face is you've got uh, a fairly siloed, I think the way humans like to build systems is in a siloed fashion. You know, you take a problem, you break it down into its components, you assign managers to those pieces and you solve them. And then you end up with this holistic system that works. But, but the problem is, how do you actually relate all the data between all of those different pieces? Um, and, and the reason I started with that example of kind of going from the client level to the internal systems to the exchange level is each one of those systems generally has their own set of managers and they've made their own decisions as to how to store that data. If you put all that data together retrospectively, um, you can actually start to realize very information about very interesting information about that. Um, and so if you choose just one little piece, yeah, you can see, okay, this is what my clients submitted. Or if you look at the exchange, you can look, okay, that's interesting. This is how the response time of that particular exchange. But if you put all this together, now you can say, ah, this, these clients with this sort of trading behavior are seeing this sort of response time. And, the, and this isn't an exact example here, but I'm just trying to kind of give your, your listeners an idea of what I mean by saying there's a story to be told when you start to put all this together. And the reason I chose that example is because in that one example, we would have, um, we would have uh, structured data coming in probably. We'd have messaging uh, traveling between the systems. We'd have unstructured data for storing all the sort of parameters you'd need to do that trading. Um, and then we'd have a columnar database probably to store that market data. So we've got no less than four different types of message or four different types of data that we want to be able to bring together. Yeah, that, that's pretty fascinating because if you, if you look at unstructured data, structured data, and then you start talking about the different types of databases, et cetera, you know, it, to me, it seems like it would be rather complicated or time-consuming for someone to try to do all of this manually and, you know, kind of connect the dots. And to me, I think about artificial intelligence and, you know, you know, weaving that in on the back end and, you know, maybe a machine learning where you're training and bringing all the data into one area. How do you view artificial intelligence and do you see that as continuing to be like a great source of doing things, especially from a developer perspective moving forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I think artificial intelligence um, is, is playing a bigger and bigger role, obviously, um, in, in computer science. Um, the, the areas I've been focusing on, so the way I look at it is computer science, or I'm sorry, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, those sorts of things are getting, are getting better all the time, especially as we're getting more data to train um, these algorithms. 
But ultimately, uh, this, this AI, these AI tools are really about taking lots of fuzzy information in and then producing machine-readable information on the other side or, or being tagged with metadata or something along those lines. So again, let, let's take, for example, if you do, um, if you're going to do uh, voice recognition. As you can imagine, when you talk and you say, hi, I'd like to order a pizza, right? And you say that to the computer or whatever. Um, something is then converting that into simple text that then that can be interpreted. So what I'm saying is the AI is really about taking the way we want to think about things and then converting that into information that a computer can understand and then sometimes going back again. But the, the way I look at it, and I think where we fit in, is you've got all this great AI coming out that is producing this, this nice, clean metadata. And now you want to be able to marry that with uh, a lot of structured data. So again, I come back to the storytelling thing, which is you've got your structured data and you've got your unstructured data, which is, um, which is touching heavily on the AI uh, uh, artificial intelligence side of things and then you want to be able to bring that together and that's where and, and again that's that's what we've been focusing on um, and of course the more AI there is I think naturally what that means is it makes it easier for computers or for humans to interact with computers which ultimately means we're producing and having access to more data if that makes sense it does make sense and uh... Hope, hoping that it will it will make sense to the listeners. One thing that that came to mind was just around like the different industries that um, the Gumbo listeners are in. So you have financial services and healthcare and manufacturing, and you know when you go across all the different industries and and, and landscapes and verticals, you 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 have to think about compliance and, and reg regulations because there's all of these different things like GDPR and CCPA and PCI. And I mean, there's a long list of, of regulations. From your perspective, you know, you are a founder and uh, chief technology officer. So you, I'm sure you've had lots of conversation with, with C-level executives. But what I really want to know is how does compliance and regulations affect let's say the ability to analyze and manage data effectively from, from your perspective. Yeah, it definitely opens up a new, a new set of challenges. And, and it's, I think it's a fascinating topic because you know, I've kind of grown up through this where it was the Wild West, so to speak, uh, you know, even as, even I, I want to say 20 years ago, but maybe even 10 years ago. I mean, really, it was not a lot of, uh, uh, not, not nearly as much scrutiny in this space. Um, I, I've noticed a huge uptick, I would say, in the last 24 months um, of just all of this, all of the concerns kind of on two sides. One around um, compliance in terms of are the systems doing what they're supposed to be doing? Are you recording the necessary information for the regulatory bodies, things like that? But also um, just around security. I, I mean, that, that's become a huge issue as well. Um, and and so and I think these 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 actually come together um, in an important way. So one of the things that becomes more and more important, obviously, is know your customer, and even internally, it's almost like know your employee. So uh, you know we we were always integrating with new entitlement systems. The entitlements are getting far more sophisticated and far more granular. Um, but this is where actually structured data becomes very very important and. And, and tying that with the unstructured data. So as an example, let's say I'm allowed to have access to listen to recordings 
from a particular for a particular sector of an organization. Well, the only way you could even solve that sort of problem would be you need to tie that AI data um, and its metadata back to the back to the structured data, and then that structured data ties into your entitlements. And so all of this fits together. So it's 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 creating a really unique challenge. But but what's interesting too is the the um, carte blanche answer as well. Just just restrict everyone and only let them see this tiny little thing or what exactly what they need to do their job. But if you want to have a competitive um, edge, then you really want to understand what the, the spirit of these rules is and build your entitlements according to that. So you're not over restricting your, your em employees. And, and by the way, I might be focusing a little too much on the internal because generally mm -hmm. what we're doing is helping our customers evaluate their data. Okay. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And and so it becomes a big question. There's all these there's all these rules internally. You know, this asset class can't see that asset class's data. You know, buy side can't see sell side's data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but again, you wanna you wanna try to um, put together a, a holistic graph, if you will, and then be able to to tie the entitlements into that. Yeah, and just just for me, the, the way I I visualize that is more around classifying what that data is. Um, each each data has its own importance and some data we may not care about, but other pieces of data is very important and it, it, it has to be protected and stored and classified in a certain way. And so I want to take a shift and move into a new direction. I, I really want to understand like your technology and, and the background of, you know, how it works and you know, how is it architected? If that's something that you could share, and I'm, I'm sure you probably have something running in AWS and one of the big public cloud vendors and using microservices and containers and all of this fancy stuff that everyone uh, actually utilizes nowadays for just from a DevOps perspective. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so to kind of tie that last topic in with the cloud stuff, what we're seeing is uh, more and more, yes, uh, our customers are, are trusting the cloud. I think there was a, a level of concern in the beginning. You know, like no one wanted to be first to take all their their sensitive data and move it into the cloud. Uh, I think what we're seeing more and more is the less sensitive data is being moved into the cloud. So large, so where it makes sense is where you have really large sets of data that aren't as sensitive, that ends up sitting in the cloud and the extremely sensitive data that they're still domiciling internally. And we're seeing that shift um, every day um, more towards the cloud. But, and, and I'll go back to my original example. Um, so let's take market data. So market data, while you have to pay for it, is generally public information. I mean, it's, it's public information as to what price the stock traded at a particular time. So that's a great candidate to put into the cloud or to put into some sort of shared service. At the same time, you now have your internal trades, your, your, your customer's activity, that's domiciled internally. And now the question is, how do you marry these together? So you've got internal data and external data. Um, so really, from my perspective, there's, there's three Okay. There's three ingredients to this recipe. Oh yeah, I guess we're on a, the gumbo show, so I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll run with the. <laughs> I'll Let's run do with it. it. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so we've got so we've got these three three ingredients, which is um, you know where the data is domiciled. Um, then we've got uh, the classification, as you mentioned, as to what 
you know how that data is tagged and its and its availability, and then you've got the entitlements of the user. Um, so generally, the way that works is user logs in, we grab the entitlements um, from an internal entitlement system, that then gets uh, paired with with that user, and that's that's basically driving uh, what data they can they can see. So it's basically comparing against the classification of that data, and then once that's been determined, now from there you can draw a web out. So once you've gotten to let's say the account they're interested in, now you can draw a web out to more of the public data. And so you can tell that, that get that full picture. Mm, okay. All right. This should be an easier conversation. Um, and I don't know why I'm, I am curious about this, but you know, I, I really would like to know, like, what was the, what was the thought process? Uh, you a founder, what was the thought process like when you came up with the idea of three forge and, we should build this and there's a gap and let's start looking for developers or maybe you you developed it yourself. I don't know. You are you a coder? Absolutely. Oh yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the reason I really um, decided to do this was I found that when you try to tackle this problem internally, so if you're sitting inside one of the, the big banks of the tier ones, um, naturally you're focused on the uh, direct problem and the direct infrastructure on hand. Um, so let's just say, you know, the group you're in, they happen to be using, I don't know, Sybase as their database, and we're using TIBCO as our messaging system, and we're using, um, you know, Chrome as our browser, uh, whatever, right? Then you end up building your your world, that that is your world, and you end up building your system to work within that confine, within that world. And, and generally, you know, if you went and you said, listen, I want to spend 10 times as much money to make this completely generic, um, that, that doesn't go over so well um, because you know, there's, there's priorities to get these things done. And, and I felt that if there was just a level of abstraction of data virtualization was, was introduced to this mix, that you could really build um, much better systems and much more agile systems. Uh, and so that's really what I set out to do. So we step back and if you go to threeforge.com, I mean, and you look at it, you're gonna see tons and tons of adapters. I mean, we're always building new adapters. We're building, you know, we built adapters to, uh, you know, the, the different kinds of key vaults, right? For, for, getting, uh, for getting the secrets and not having to, to store them at rest on the system. We've got adapters to real-time messaging systems, adapters to static data sources. We've got adapters for how to read different types of files, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this becomes important because if, if you're only building systems for your immediate world, then it's very hard to rise above that and then and, and try to look across the whole landscape. And that's what I felt was missing. So that, that, that was really the, the thought process in that. And just because... I would like to know, is an adapter like uh, mm. API? Yeah, like thank API you. I just, I just assume these things. Yeah, well, what, what I consider an adapter would be an implementation of an API. Okay, okay. So, so that's something that regardless of what the source is, it can tap into and communicate to your system and, right. and hook into that and, and, and to, to do whatever it needs to do, right? So a very so a very simple example. I want to pull data from a MySQL database and a Sybase database. Um, okay. So we have two adapters, one for one for each of those. 
Uh, and then when you're now developing your dashboard on that, you don't really care which one you're going to, or maybe you're even going to both of them at the same time. That works perfectly fine. Um, or you're joining across them. So basically we have an adapter for each of those. And then our, and then basically our, our platform sits, uses those adapters to then communicate with these underlying systems. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense now. And you, you mentioned data virtualization. What, what's your definition of data virtualization and why do you think it's important, especially in today's like really shifting environment that we're in? Yeah, uh, at, at the risk of getting too computer science-y, uh, I always look at it as you've got like logical and, and physical. Um, you know, you've got your, you know what I mean? Like if you go back in time, you have your logical MAC address, or I'm sorry, your, your physical MAC address and your logical IP address. Maybe it's a bad analogy, but, but something like, body, like that. body and spirit, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, that's a better way to put it. Thank you. <laughs> there's, there's a reason you're the host and I'm the guest. <laughs> um, so, so uh, right. So, so the idea is instead of physically connecting to a database, um, what a virtualization layer does is it says you logically connect to that database. So what you do is you connect to the virtualization layer. And then if it's done right, um, instead of connecting directly, well, instead of connecting directly to the database, you'd connect to the virtualization layer. And then from the virtualization layer, you would use some sort of alias and that alias would direct you to the physical database. And this becomes very important because let's say you've got account information and um, you've got, I don't know, um, sales information. If you work with databases and hosts, you know the, the names of databases and hosts are always terrible. They're, they're just, they're, a lot of times their numbers are this or that. But now what you could do is you could say, okay, logically my MySQL database is my account database. Or, and, and, and logically this other database, that's my sales database. So now when you wanna ask questions, instead of having to physically go to that database, you go to the logical name and then the virtualization forwards it. So that that's what I would say is kind of the minimum that a virtualization layer would do. What we focus on really is about being able to now integrate those different layers and make it look like one. So you could say, I want information from my uh, accounting database and my sales database, and I want that joined or blended together in a way that's meaningful to me. So that's that's what I think of when I think of a virtualization layer, a, a full-blown virtualization okay. layer. Yeah. Awesome, I, I love that. And I, I often hear about low code and no code, and I, I worked a little bit within a company that they, re they were really heavy into CICD. And um, I learned a lot about the DevOps world and, you know, what developers think about and DevSecOps. And it's an entirely different space. Where, where do you see the, the future of DevOps going? By the way, before I, before I answer that, I have to make a disclaimer. In, in the virtualization layer, I skipped over the, uh, all the entitlements and, and the data you know, uh, management side of it, because that's another important part of uh, virtualization layers, being able to control who can see what and audit and things along those lines. Anyways, moving on. Yes. So um, around the uh, low code, no code uh, space, we've coined the, the term high impact code is what we call it. So the idea is, well, let's step back. Let's just talk about what, what, what a, what a building software not using low code or no code looks like. I would say if you're gonna build something simple, like I just want a grid, a table with a bunch of rows and columns and some headers, and then I want like a simple dialog box, something like that. 
if you were to break down and make a pie chart of the actual code that's business logic or 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 custom and 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 driving that use case versus the percentage of the pie that is just sort of routine computer sciencey for loops how to you know choosing colors where to draw the lines where to lay things out you'd find a vast majority of it is just this boilerplate code that everyone is writing over and over again and admittedly it can be kind of fun to write that code i'll, I'll admit it you're kind of building from scratch it's like a greenfield project at the end of the day though um you can dramatically reduce the amount of uh, development time uh, if, by using these low-code, no-code, or as we call them, high-impact code platforms. Uh, and I think this has several effects. One is you don't spend as much time writing code. Two, the less code you write, the less bugs you're going to have. That's logical, too. Uh, and then the third thing is, and I think this is the most important, is that you get a much more rapid turnaround time in terms of... Uh, getting user feedback. So, so I think one of the biggest problems with, with traditional software development uh, within, within the, the tier ones, tier twos, even tier threes, is that um, you get requirements from the business uh, on, on what they want to be built. You go, you build it, you spend six months, you give it to them, and there's always some communication breakdown along the way and no way this is supposed to operate that way now why then you go back to the drawing board and suddenly it's years this whole thing gets protracted out in years to deliver something if you're using a low code platform and you can you can basically take the requirements and build something out in a few days and give them a, a demo of that and then they can say no 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 i want this over here and that over there and you can you can shorten that delivery cycle that's the biggest thing i mean the old adage is the one thing you can't buy is time but you can you can save time by not building tons and tons of infrastructure over and over again. And so I really do think that um, we're going to enter a new era where everything is going to be um, low code, no code, except for extreme outlier cases. It just doesn't make sense for people to be building everything over and over again. Yeah, I'm pretty passionate about this topic. Hey, so. that, that's exactly why I have you on. <laughs> I, I need that passion, Robert. Bring it, bring it. <laughs> Um, and one, one thing that I'm thinking about as well, it, it's, it's a simple question. I'm sure you have heard it before as a founder and CTO is, um, you know, what, what's keeping you up at night besides, you know, catching COVID these days? Uh, <laughs> that honestly doesn't keep me up at night. I'll tell you what keeps me up at night is we opened a Singapore office. <laughs> oh, wow. So okay. literally, yeah, no, so we're, we've been, we've been doing a lot of work on that. Have you traveled there yet? I haven't, but my, um, my colleagues did, they just did their first trip to, to Singapore. Okay. And it, yeah. It was a bit, um, tedious with, you know, all the quarantine and everything like that, but yeah. um, it was, it was good to get out there. Yeah. Right, right. It's actually been quite a challenge trying to open, uh, you know, add, add these international offices during, during COVID, but, um, we, we, we made it work. I can imagine. Um, no, I think, you know, what, what, uh, what, what keeps me up at night is that the, uh, that the, that the volumes of data really are going up and up and up and up. And the, uh, the variety of ways that people are storing this data is going up and up and up and up. And, to be candid, one of my concerns, and I'm seeing this more and more, is people are focusing, I think, too much time on how easy is it to store data and not putting enough time into, 
well, I can get into the security aspects of it, but but I'll I'll, I'll leave that <laughs> for another for another conversation. But 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 um, I always say it's easy to put data into a database. It's it's much more difficult to get it out if you didn't do the job right in the first place, right? So we're coming across a lot of cases where people are focusing on how do I get data, how do I store this data? And, and they've got these great ways of scaling out and storing it in huge, huge silos in, in an unstructured way, and, and, they, and they haven't actually set up indexes, and they haven't really thought through the problem. And, and you know, I, I mean, a simple example would be is, you know, they're not storing timestamps consistently. I mean, that's just a, a silly example, but those are the sorts of things that I think industry needs to really be focusing on, which is storing data um, so that, that when I say future generations, I mean people two years down the road when they decide they want to analyze this data, they can get to that data effectively. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And are, are you reading any, any cool books that you could possibly recommend to the Gumbo listeners or you don't have time to, to, to do any reading because you're too busy coding? <laughs> um, I, 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 <laughs> I'm definitely not reading any any cool books. Um, you know, I'm always kind of uh, catching up on on different uh, different computer science uh, literature and things along those lines. So, um, yeah, I, I really wouldn't be able to recommend anything though. Okay, so, yeah. N- not a problem. Maybe a magazine or a website or something because <laughs> I I am a sponge. You know, I I always like to to find new outlets of um, like newsletters and. Uh, information that's all concise in one location to save me time from having to, you know, figure out what's important. And there's already a lot of, you know, great avenues out there and websites and newsletters that, that people are putting putting out there. So one is Morning Brew. If you hadn't mm-hmm. heard of Morning Brew, I think they're based out of yes, New York. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely uh, is, are familiar with that one. And, um, you know, what, what else do you need than, than uh, your show? <laughs> Well, that that is a good one. That is a good one. Uh, I, I think another one was a uh, protocol. Okay, interesting. I'm actually unfamiliar with that. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. That that's one. I don't I don't read it often. And uh, Andreessen Horowitz, he has some nice stuff, but his is mostly connected to mm-hmm. the overall industry and VC right. and you know where the money is going, etc. But there's some great write ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I would say I would say if I you know we're if, if uh, I were to give advice, I mean, my thing is, I, what I find fascinating is the more I start reading literature, I actually am going back to books written in the, in the 70s and 80s, believe it or not, um, because, because I think actually a lot of the core, core concepts of, of data storage and things like that were actually really thought through when, when, when hardware was so minimal that every byte counted. Um, you know, we were still doing reel to reel and things like that. So I, so, and, and I am, you know, I, I mean, I, I write data, I've written several databases. So I, I really think about what does it mean to do query planning and stuff like that. But, but, um, you know, like the old C, CJ dates books and things like that, I think are, are, are excellent reads. Again, they're not cool reads. So I, you know, I, I want to be careful, but they're, but they're good. It's reads. all good. It's all good. <laughs> and do you have any social media handles you would like to share for yeah, the Gumball listeners? Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen a huge growth um, in, in the last year on our um, LinkedIn. So 3Forge um, on, on LinkedIn has is a great uh, place to go if you want to find out new information on 3Forge. Uh, basically, you know, we're, we're um, doing a lot of podcasts. Um, 
we're uh, always doing new releases and we're doing articles. Uh, we publish articles around um, data speed and the different types of databases that are that are trending and things like that. So yeah, please follow us on, uh, on uh, LinkedIn. So uh, Robert, it's definitely been a pleasure to have you on Data Protection Gumbo and we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back again in the future. Okay, great. Yes, well, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.